Section 15 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, Part 1. Love's Lovers. Some ladies love the jewels in love's own, and gold-tipped darts he hath for painless play, and idle, scornful hours he flings away. And some that listen to his lute's soft tone do love to vaunt the silver praise their own. Some prize his blindfold sight, and there be they who kissed his wings which brought him yesterday, and thank his wings today that he is flown. My lady only loves the heart of love, therefore love's heart, my lady, hath for thee his bower of unimagined flower and tree. There kneels he now, and all a hungered of thine eyes, gray lit in shadowing air above, seals thy mouth, his immortality. Dante Gabriel Rossetti When an ambitious young man from the provinces signified his intention to Colonel Ingersoll of coming to Peoria and earning an honest livelihood, he was encouraged by the bishop of agnosticism with the insurance that he would find no competition. Personally, speaking for my single self, I should say that no man is in so dangerous a position as he who has no competition in well-doing. Competition is not only the life of trade, but of everything else. There have been times when I have thought that I had no competition in truth-telling, and then to prevent complacency I entered into competition with myself and endeavored to outdo my record. The natural concentration of business concerns in one line, in one locality, suggests the many advantages that accrue from attrition and propinquity. Everybody is stirred to increased endeavor. Everybody knows the scheme which will not work, for elimination is a great factor in success. The knowledge that one has is the acquirement of all. Strong men must match themselves against strong men. Good wrestlers will need only good wrestlers. And so when a match of wit rivals outclassed go unnoticed, and there is always an effort to go to the adversary one better. Our socialist comrades tell us that emulation is the better word, and that competition will have to go. The fact is that the thing itself will ever remain the same. What you call it matters little. We have, however, shifted the battle from the purely physical to the mental and psychic plane. But it is competition still, and the reason competition will remain is because it is beautiful, beneficent, and right. It is the desire to excel. Lovers are always in competition with each other to see who can love most. The best results are obtained where competition is the most free and most severe. Read history. The orator speaks, and the man who rises to reply had better have something to say. If your studio is next door to that of a great painter, you had better get you to your easel, and quickly, too. The alternating current gives power. Only an obstructed current gives either heat or light. All good things require difficulty. The Mutual Admiration Society is largely given up to criticism. Wit is progressive. Cheap jokes go with cheap people. But when you are with those of subtle insight, who make close mental distinctions, you should muzzle your mood if, perchance, you are a bumpkin. Conversation with good people is progressive. And progressive inversely, usually, where only one sex is present. Excellent people feel the necessity of saying something better than has been said, otherwise silence is more becoming. He who launches a commonplace where high thoughts prevail is quickly labeled as one who is with the yesterdays that lighted fools adown their way to dusty death. Genius has always come in groups, because groups produce the friction that generates light. Competition with fools is not bad. Fools teach the imbecility of repeating their performances. A man learns from this one and that. He lops off absurdity, strengthens here and bolsters there, until in his soul there grows up an ideal, which he materializes in stone or bronze, on canvas, by spoken word, or with the twenty-odd little symbols of Cadmus. Greece had her group with the wit of Aristophanes sought to overtop the stately lines of Aeschylus, the Praxiteles outdid Ictinus, 
and wayside words uttered by Socrates were to outlast them all. Rome had her group when all the arts sought to rival the silver speech of Cicero. One art never flourishes alone. They had to go together, each man doing the thing he can do best. All the arts are really one, and this one art is simply expression, the expression of mind speaking through its highest instrument, man. Happy is the child who is born into a family where there is a competition of ideas, and where the recurring theme is truth. The problem of education is not so very much of a problem after all. Educated people have educated children, and the best recipe for educating your child is this. Educate yourself. The Rossettis were educated people. Each was educated by all and all by each. Individuality was never ironed out, for no two were alike, and between them all were constantly little skirmishes of wit, and anyone who tacked a thesis on the door had to fight for it. Luther Burbank rightly says that children should not be taught religious dogma. The souls of the Rossettis were not waterlogged by religious belief formulated by men with less insight and faith than they. In this way, they were free. And so we find the father and the mother, blessed by exile and the cause of liberty, living hard, plain lives in clean yet dingy poverty, with never an endeavor to shine in society or to pass for anything different than what they were, and never in debt a penny to the haberdasher, the dressmaker, the milliner, or the grocer. When they had no money to buy a thing they wanted, they went without it. Just the religion of paying your way and being kind would be a pretty good sort of religion. Don't you think so? So now, behold this little republic of letters, father and mother and four children, Maria, Christina, Dante, Gabriel, and William Michael. The father was a poet, musician, and teacher. The mother was a housekeeper, advisor, and critic, and she supplied the necessary ballast of common sense, without which the domestic dory would surely have turned turtle. Once we heard this good mother saying, I always had a passion for intellect, and my desire was that my husband and my children might be distinguished for intellect, but now I wish they had a little less intellect so as to allow for a little more common sense. This not only proves that this mother of four very extraordinary and superior children had wit, but it also seems to show that even intellect has to be bought with a price. I have read about all that has been written concerning Rossetti and the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood by those with right and license to speak. And among all those who have set themselves down and dipped pen and ink, no one that I have found has emphasized the very patent truth that it was a woman who evolved the Pre-Raphaelite idea, and first exemplified it in her life and housekeeping. It was Francis Polidora Rossetti who supplied Emerson that fine phrase, plain living and high thinking. Of course, it might have been original also with Emerson, but probably it reached him via the Ruskin and Carlyle route. Emerson also said, a few plain rules suffice, but Mrs. Rossetti, ten years before, put it this way, a few plain things suffice. She had a horror of debt which her husband did not fully share. She preferred cleanly poverty and honest sparsity to luxury on credit. In her household, she had her way. Possibly it was making a virtue of necessity, but she did it so sincerely and gracefully that prenatally her children accepted the simplicity of their pre-Raphaelite home as its chief charm. Without the Rossettis, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood would never have existed. It will be remembered that the first protest of the Brotherhood was directed against Wilton carpets, gaudy hangings, and ornate, strange, and peculiar furniture. Christina Rossetti once told William Morris that when she was but seven years old, her mother and she congratulated themselves on the fact that all of the furniture they had was built on straight and simple lines, that it might be easily cleaned with a damp cloth. They had no carpets, but they possessed one fine rug in the other room, which was daily brought out to air and admire. The floors were finished in hard oil, and on the walls were simply the few pictures that they themselves produced, and the mother usually insisted on having only one picture in a room at a time so as to have time to study it. So here we get the very quintessence of the entire philosophy of William Morris, a philosophy which, it has well been said, has tinted the entire housekeeping world. 
In his magazine, called somewhat ironically Good Words, Dickens ridiculed, reviled, and berated the pre-Raphaelite idea. Of course, Dickens didn't understand what the Rossettis were trying to express. He called it pagan, anti-Christian, and the glorification of pauperism. Dickens was born in a debtor's prison, constructively, and he leaped from squalor into fussy opulence. He wrote for the rabble, and he who writes for the rabble has a ticket to Limbus one way. The Rossettis made their appeal to the elect few. Dickens was sired by Wilkins Micawber and damned by Mrs. Nickleby. He wallowed in the cheap and tawdry, and the gospel of sterling simplicity was absolutely outside his orbit. Dickens knew no more about art than did the prosperous beef-eater, who, being partial to the hard sound of the letter, asked Rossetti for a copy of The Germ, and thus supplied the pre-Raphaelites a title they thenceforth gleefully used. But the abuse of Dickens had its advantages. It called the attention of Ruskin to the little group. Ruskin came, he saw, and was conquered. He set forth such a ringing defense of the truths for which they stood that the thinking people of London stopped and listened, and this caused Holman Hunt to say, Alas, I fear me we are getting respectable. Ruskin's unstinted praise of this little band of artists was so great that he convinced even his wife of the truth of his view, and as we know, she fell in love with Millais, the prize-taking cub, and they were married and lived happily ever after. Ruskin and Morris were both born into rich families, where every luxury that wealth could buy was provided. Having much, they knew the worthlessness of things. They realized what Walter Pater has called the poverty of riches. Dickens had only taken an imaginary correspondence course in luxury, and so Wilton carpets and marble mantles gave him a peace which religion could not lend. A Wilton carpet was to him a Christian prayer rug. The joy of discovery was Ruskin's. He found the Rossettis and gave them to the world. Ruskin was a professor at Oxford, and in his classes were two inseparables, William Morris and Burne Jones. They became infected with the simplicity virus, and when Burne Jones went up to London, which is down from Oxford, he sought out the man who had painted The Girlhood of the Virgin, the picture Charles Dickens had advertised by declaring it to be blasphemously idolatrous. Burne Jones was so delighted with Rossetti's work that he insisted upon Rossetti giving him lessons, and then he wrote such a glowing account of the Rossettis to his chum, William Morris, that Morris came up to see for himself whether these things were true. Morris met the Rossettis, spent the evening at their home, and went back to Oxford filled with the idea of utopia, and that the old world would not find rest until it accepted the dictum of Mrs. Rossetti, a few plain things suffice. It was a woman who brought about the epoch. The year 1850 was certainly rich in gifts for Gabriel Rossetti. He was 22, gifted, handsome, intellectual, the adored pet and pride of his mother and two sisters, and also the hero of the little art group to which he belonged. I am not sure that the lavish love his friends had for him made him a bit smug and self-satisfied, for we hear of Ruskin saying, Thank God he is young, which remark means all that you can read into it. At this time, Rossetti had written many poems, and at least one great one, The Blessed Damozel. He had also painted at least one great picture, The Girlhood of the Virgin, a canvas that he vainly tried to sell for 40 pounds, which later was to be bought by the nation for the tidy sum of 800 guineas, and now cannot be bought for any price, but which, nevertheless, may be seen by all on the walls of the National Gallery. But four numbers of The Germ had been printed, and then the venture had sunk into the realm of things that were, weighted with a debt of 120 pounds. Of the 51 contributions to the germ, 26 had been by the Rossettis. Dante Gabriel, always a bit superstitious, felt sure that the gods were trying to turn him from literature to art, but Christina felt no comfort in the failure. Then came the championship of Ruskin, and this gave much courage to the little group. Doubtless none knew that they stood for so much until they had themselves explained to themselves by Ruskin. The best of all came Byrne Jones and Morris, adding their faith to the common fund and proving by cash purchases that their admiration was genuine. Rossetti's poem, The Blessed Damozel, 
was without doubt inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee, but with this difference, that while Rossetti carried the sorrow clear to paradise, Poe was content to leave his sorrow on earth. Being a painter of pictures as well as picturing things by means of words, Rossetti had constantly in his mind someone who might pose for the damozel. She must be stately, sober, serious, tall, and possess a wondrous length of limb. Her features must be strong, individual, and she must have personality rather than beauty. A pretty woman would, of course, never, never do. Where was such a model woman to be found? Christina wrote a beautiful sonnet about this ideal woman. Here it is. One face looks out from all his canvases. One self-same figure sits or walks or leans. We found her hidden just behind those screens. That mirror gave back all her loveliness. A queen in opal or in ruby dress, a nameless girl in freshest summer greens, a saint, an angel. Every canvas means the one same meaning, neither more nor less. He feeds upon her face by day and night, and she with true, kind eyes looks back on him. Fair as the moon and joyful as the light, not wan with waiting, not with sorrow dim. Not as she is, but was when hope shone bright. Not as she is, but as she fills his dream. Dante Gabriel was becoming moody, dreamy, and melancholy, but not quite so melancholy as he thought he was, since the divine joy of his was expressing his melancholy in art. People submerged in melancholy are not creative. Rossetti was quite sure that nature had never made as lovely a woman as he could imagine, and his drawings almost proved it, but being a man, he never gave up the quest. One day, Walter Deverell, one of the Brotherhood, came into Rossetti's studio and proceeded to stand on his head and then jump over the furniture. After being reprimanded, and then interrogated as to reasons, he told what he was dying to tell. That is, I have found her. Her name was Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, and she was an assistant to a milliner and dressmaker in Oxford Street. She was 17 years old, 5 feet 8 inches high, and weighed 120 pounds. Her hair was of a marvelous, coppery, low tone, and her features were those of Sappho. None of the assembled brotherhood had ever seen Sappho, but they had their ideas about her. Whether the dressmaker's wonderful assistant had intellect and soul did not trouble the young man. Dante Gabriel, the nester of the group, 22 and wise, was not about to be swept off his feet by the young and impressible enthusiasm of Deverell, age 19. He sneezed and calmly continued his work at the easel, merely making inward note of the location of the shop where the find was located. Two hours later, Rossetti, perceiving himself alone, laid aside his brushes and palette, put on his hat, and walked rapidly toward Oxford Street. He located the shop, straggled past it, first on one side of the street, then on the other, and finally boldly entered on a fictitious errand. Miss Siddle was there. He stared at her. She looked at him in half-disdain. Suddenly, his knees grew weak. He turned and fled. Deverell boldly stalked the quarry the next day in company with his mother, who was a customer of the shop. He failed to get an interview. A little later, the mother went back alone and put the matter before Miss Siddle in a purely business light. Elizabeth Eleanor was from a very poor family. Her father was an auctioneer who had lost his voice, and she was glad to increase the meager pay she was receiving by posing for the artists. She was already a model, setting off bonnets and gowns, and her first idea was that they wanted her for fashion plates. Mrs. Deverell did not disabuse her of this idea. And so she posed for the class at Rossetti's studio, duly gowned as angels are supposed to be draped and dressed in paradise. Mrs. Deverell was present to give assurance, and all went well. The young woman was dignified, proud, with a fine but untrained mind. As to her knowledge of literature, she explained that she had read Tennyson's poems because she had found them on some sheets of paper that were wrapped around a pad of butter she had brought to take home to her mother. Her general mood was one of silent good nature, flavored with a dash of pride, and an innocent curiosity to know how the picture was getting along. 
It has been said that people who talk but little are quiet either because they are too full for utterance or because they have nothing to utter. Miss Siddle was reserved because she realized that she could never talk as picturesquely as she could look. People who know their limitations are in the line of evolution. The girl was eager and anxious to learn, and Rossetti set about to educate her. In the operation, he found himself loving her with a mad devotion. End of section 15